Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the English Department Podcast. This time around, we are returning for another series of book club episodes, where we will be discussing Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest. Joining us is fellow UVM student Jeanette, who is in our last series of book club episodes. And I know I'm super excited to start talking with you guys. So to start off, I wanted to ask you guys a question because I was wondering... How does this compare to Emma in general? And do you think they're making, like, similar or, like, completely different statements? I think they're in the same field of statements, you know? Both are kind of absurdist takes, you know, character... Character... Uh, caricaturistic um, characters of, you know, their respective time periods and, and the trials and tribulations of of being in a society, <laughs> like, living in them. But I feel that they're definitely getting at something different. And the way in which they're presented, Emma being a novel and the importance of being Ernest being a play, that feels significant to me. But what that significance is yet, I'm not entirely sure since we've only read the first two mm. acts of um, Importance of Being Earnest, but it definitely, it feels like it's catered perhaps to a different audience in that way. But they're definitely getting at a very mm. similar thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if, if, you, if you put a gun to Jane Austen and Oscar Wilde's head and you said, hey, should I be myself? Should I be myself right now? I feel like, you know, they would both <laughs> be like, yes, yes, you should. What? Put that thing away, you know? Like, I, I feel like, you know, they have similar interests in satirizing like this very rigid social structure. But I, you know, we just, we haven't finished the play yet. We're, we were only, we have an act, another act mm. left. So, I mean, I don't really know because Emma is definitely about, Emma sort of has to like learn how to rein in her own personality, sort of. It's almost like, you know, I hate to say mm -hmm. it, it's almost like a taming of the shrew kind of situation. But, you know, from the inside, it's just mm. a character growth. Mm. But, you know, we have no way of knowing right now if any of these people are going to, like, I don't know what's going to happen at the end of the play. Honestly, like, you know, he's sort of written, we're in a corner right now. At the, it's, uh, the, you know, the big secret at the end of Act 2 is already that, is already revealed that they're both going by the name Ernest and that there is no Ernest, right? So I'm really curious to see, right. like, where it goes. Yep. Where do we go from here? Yeah, definitely. I, I wonder how he's gonna end it but like in my own opinion like i kind of see uh you know they're both making the same satire on high society right. but i think austin ultimately kind of like accepts the rules in the end she kind mm. of does ultimately emma does go and marry who she's supposed to and harriet marries who she's supposed to and i think i I mean, we're we're not sure how this ends yet, but maybe he'll do the same thing. But I I don't really see that happening, like where we are right now. But I do think the the two do make uh, similar satire. But I think Jane Austen kind of does say, "Oh, well, you still have to work within the rules or whatever." 
Right. Right. She settles in it. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, there can be some deviation and Emma can be quirky and whatever. But in the end, you know, yeah, exactly as you said. Mm. High society rules. And this is not to this is not to say that, you know, like Jane Austen is like a a conservative mongrel or anything, you know, persuasion, (laughs) persuasion, you know, it does have, you know, the main character, Mary, who she's not supposed to. That's pretty crazy. Mm. so yeah you know yeah. it's just i feel like in emma like i feel you know they sort of yeah they revert back to the sort of social schema that they're supposed to but it's kind of in emma really the decision is being made on the moral interpersonal kind of boundaries of that and it just you know magically but <laughs> ends up in the way that it's supposed to end up which is of course mm. you know the way that the fiction is operating but you know, yeah. <laughs> I guess that was my whole point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, do, do you guys have a uh, favorite scene out of like the acts that you have? I know, like specifically, what like stuck out to me was the muffin scene. Oh yeah, at the end of Act Two, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> the like the questioning of Jack by Gwendolyn's mother both really stuck out to me because, well, the muffin scene is just like. Pure absurdity, I think. I still can't Mm -hmm. wrap my head around it in some ways. I'm like, what is the significance of the tea cake? And what is the significance of the muffin? (laughs) 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 I'm trying to wrap my head around it. But at the same time, is this what Oscar Wilde was trying to do to me? Is just to make me confused. And then the scene with... Gwendolyn's mother questioning Jack I thought was really good because it was like literally all establishing here are the rules are you following the rules Mm. one one of the lines that really stuck out to me in that was I think she said something like do you read books are you educated or do you know nothing and Jack says oh well I I know nothing and she's like oh perfect (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was that was crazy I mean you know I guess the thing about this play is that people will say crazy things and then have an explanation for it. And it's not, the explanations mm, are not bad. Exactly. That, you know, she's, she's like, she doesn't, you know, I, I'm not sure if I was in this time period, I'm not sure if I would want my relative to marry a guy who got found in a purse. You know? I like, back. I feel, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's right? perfectly fair. I, I feel like I it, she, it. she has a claim there. Mm. I feel like, you know, at some point, like, I feel like this, this, this play is always sort of investigating, like, we know why people do the way they think they do things also, I, as opposed to, I think, Emma, which is really, really just, I think, attracted to the absurdity sometimes, especially like some of the characters like Mrs. Bates, you know, that whose whole purpose is to just oh, kind of be mm-hmm. like this ornament, you know what I mean? This is a smaller play with sort of less actors. And therefore, I don't know, I felt like I got more characterization out of the absurdity than I did in Emma. Mm-hmm. Mm. I would agree with that. I definitely think, um, oh, what's her name? Blackwell, late, the, the mm. mom of Gwendolyn's mom. She definitely like was one of my favorite characters. I re- also really enjoyed that questioning scene. Oh man, it's just so classic. 
when when she's like, "Do you smoke?" Uh, and and you expect it to be like smoking is a bad thing, but you know, I guess <laughs> you forget. Like in olden days, smoking was seen as very fashionable. And she's like, "Well, good. It's a cure for idleness or whatever the hell." Oh yeah, she's she's like, every man needs a hobby, and I'm like, smoking is a hobby. I I, I, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I and mean, I guess if you're a Victorian dandy, you don't have anything better to do than to like yeah. smoke and look out windows. I, I found it just like so funny how they seem so all self-aware to a certain extent. They all realize like how boring they all are. <laughs> At least especially Algernon, who is just like, oh, I, I hate going to these parties because they're just so boring. You never talk about anything. There's never any drama. <laughs> Yeah, they are, they are on on some level self aware, which I appreciate. It's, I kept thinking about when I was reading this about how much I kind of hate everyone, but not in a bad way, which is how I feel about The Great Gatsby. Like you're supposed <laughs> to hate everyone in Gatsby, but <laughs> I just have such a terrible time hating them. Meanwhile, mm. in this play, I'm thoroughly enjoying like not liking these characters. They're just all so very strange, <laughs> and I love it. I love it. Like, not one of them is a good person. Me, I mean, maybe save Cecily. Cecil, Cecily, whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Ce- Cecily thought she was in- engaged to a, 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 a person, a man, who doesn't even exist. She wrote it down in her diary. Yeah, didn't she just, like, make it up herself? No, I mean, I exactly. Def- I understand completely the urge, but I mean, come on. Like, it's, she's crazy. Like, she I... is. And there is that one part where she's like, what does she say? She's like, well, I hope he's actually a terrible person and not just making it up. Well, and he, she's good. so attracted he's... to him being like a bad boy. That's like the whole yeah. arc of, of it is so, like, it's also so funny how the lies inform, you know, it's so tight. That's what I really appreciate about this play yes, is like, wow. It is very tight. It's, re- it's like a ball of, of, of like wool or something it's just like you just mm-hmm. keep pulling you know the way the ways in which the reason why she's so attracted to Algernon as Ernest is because Jack kept saying that Ernest was such a bad boy and kept getting into scrapes <laughs> you know it's some it's it all kind of goes back to you know it's the fact that he lies in the beginning that makes his own downfall you know what I mean yes well exactly. do you think Jack is partly inspired by Algernon for the creation of Ernest? Because I do think Algernon kind of is, out of everyone, like, the bad boy, if you were gonna characterize someone as the bad boy. He is the bad boy, but kind of in the way that Lestat's the bad boy in Interview with a Vampire. Like, he's, uh, I don't even know, because I feel like Jack, you know, he just, I feel like his lies do more harm than Algernon's. Mm. That's true. Which maybe... Maybe that is unfounded, but, like, Jack is actively, like, lying to his relatives at, like, in a way that affects their... Like, Cecily literally made up a whole romance just because Jack, like, told her that he had this brother that is... Yeah, Jack is much more cunning than Algernon, I think. He's much more calculating with how he lies and where he plans things, where Algernon is just doing it to, like, have fun. Algernon's right. all about, you know, bun burying, which is <laughs> one of one of my new favorite words ever. It's just yes, I'm just going to so bun good. bury everything. <laughs> For sure. Yes. 
Yeah. I well, you know, there's a reason why it's called the importance of being earnest, not the importance of being Bunbury. <laughs> it, you know, it's like that's true. I, I, I think while Jack is more cunning, he kind of paints himself into this corner with with Ernest and like actually does get in trouble. But Bunbury, mm. the, I think the brilliance of, of Bunbury is that he's an invalid. Like that's that's the whole point of that character is, you know, that he's constantly like frail at his bedside. You know, you never know when he's going to go. Don't visit him now. But, you know, I got to because I'm his friend. Just that logic. Really funny. And also like, you know, dark, you know, living up to uh, the, mm. the gothic style and everything you know oh, yeah a, a tash of a dash of dark humor there's that one scene of where he's wearing macabre. black yeah speaking of scenes i wanted to say i think my favorite scene in these two the just in terms of like what worked for me i think the interaction between cecily and gwendolyn has got to be just is just so funny especially prefacing the fact that like they have that conversation jack and algae where they're like oh women call each other's a lot of things before they call each other sister and then you get to see them call each other a lot of things before they call them. It's just like, yeah. <laughs> it's such a, it's just, it's such a perfect setup punchline. Truly, it's just like, yeah. there you go. Mm-hmm. This is just, so, it's so effective in comedy. This play, honestly, mm. it's just, an, it's entertaining to to see characters investigate false identities. Truly, I like the word that you used to describe it before. That it's tight. I think that is where wild excels in this play is that it is all very like it's very snappy it's very witty none of them talk like real people but that's okay because that's not the point mm-hmm. they're they're just here to say they're witty little things and the witty little things have witty little callbacks and it's just all one big ball of purple wool that unravels <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I don't know why it had to be purple. It just feels like a very foppish color. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're but, saying this yeah. play you're saying this play is foppish now, Jeanette. Just a tad. <laughs> just a tad. I mean I mean no offense to Mr. Oh, I, Wilde, yeah, but for sure. But yeah, I guess Oscar Wilde was kind of a foppish person in general. <laughs> yes. I I agree. Metrosexual. <laughs> I'm looking at, this is totally off base, but I'm looking at just foppish and like the Google dropdowns and I'm seeing like foppish physician, foppishly, foppish dandy, foppish synonym, foppish, foppish aplomb, Ooh, and foppish aplomb voice lines. <laughs> I see Lottie da in the, in the dropdown, which is funny because that was in this week's <laughs> crossword puzzle in the New York Times as a synonym wow. for pretentious was Lottie da. So there you go. <laughs> But anyway. That's funny. Speaking of, like, definitions, I actually looked up just the plain, like, definition of being earnest. Just the plain definition of earnest. Just because I was just like, man, what does this title actually mean? Before I even went into it, I was just like, is this going to be sort of an instruction manual of how to be earnest? (laughs) I, I found that so interesting because the character of Ernest himself is totally the opposite of the de- definition of Ernest. If if anything, Bunbury is the real Ernest. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess we have to see if they get Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll have to see. I really, I really have to wonder where they're going to go from here. Like, if they're going to carry through with the christening and then everything's going to be hunky-dory. Like... I don't know and what a weird it's just such a bizarre plot point like 
you know, you make this character that has an ambiguous background, so then he feels less guilt about getting, you know, baptized again. And he goes 30 minutes after the kids. <laughs> but then his friend just go, wants to get christened anyway, and he's already been christened. So it's like, you know, it's it's like even within the sort of like fake, the the things that we have no social standard for, like getting christened mm-hmm. when you're like 30, you know, even, even the rules that we make up in the moment for the things that we do are getting like invalidated mm-hmm. by other people. So. Yeah. Did you guys have a uh, favorite character at all? I mean, I love Cecily and her mother. I think they're hilarious. I, the mother mm-hmm. only shows up for like what that one bit with the yeah, that like one questioning scene is just like her highlight. <laughs> I think that's, uh, I think that's probably the best scene in the play too. Right? Like, I just love that. I think they're hilarious. And then Cecily just, not only does she, like, make this fake romance, just the fact that she, like, had a fake engagement ring and had a fake betrothal that was broken off once, I love it. Like, girl, I want to study you like a bug. That's hilarious. (laughs) Just... I want to get into the head of someone who will literally write letters to herself <laughs> as her beau that doesn't exist. Not that she knows that. Like, imagine if he actually did exist. What What would you do? <laughs> I think that, I mean, wow, that that's a great question. I mean, what would any of these characters Right, do? exactly. Which I guess it's not really useful to think because then there would be no play if Algernon hadn't shown up but just the idea that there could have been a brother that Cecily like was pretending to be in love with for all this time that like could have shown up and just been like what is going on here like that's hilarious but yeah I I really like those two Mm. yeah I definitely liked Cecily because I think she's like the least ingrained by the rules she she's probably has the most potential to be a rule breaker and to be actually educated and stuff. But I find it kind of funny how her mother, Miss Prism, is kind of like arbiter of the rules mm-hmm. in the same way that Gwendolyn's mother is. Something that really stuck out to me was how of like all the things that Miss Prism tells Cecily to like study, the one thing she says not to study is <laughs> what the fall of like Rome or something which is like interesting because it's like the one thing she's not supposed to learn Mm -hmm. is how the rules fall apart (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) had to to, to sit and ponder that for a second i think cecily also says i I forget who she's talking to but it's on like page 55 and he she says like well, he's never written a single book, so you can imagine how, how much he knows. It's funny how, like, everything is just, like, the opposite in this play. If you know nothing, you know everything. If you don't read or write anything, you're knowledgeable. You must know everything. I think that definitely speaks on the whole, like, idea of, like, the social order and, like, the unconscious and everything. It's like, if you know nothing, you're purely functioning on your unconscious and the rules Mm -hmm. of the society and not really thinking about anything. And I I found it interesting in general how much this play focused on, like, education. There's a lot of reference to just, like, art and education and how all the educators, they're they're (laughs) the ones who cause, like, the French Revolution and stuff. Yeah. 
lots of just jabs at education and bettering oneself mm. in general honestly yeah. <laughs> you know i mean none of the characters are really they're well i mean they have servants right but they really never mm. need to be in a position at least in the course of this play where they actually need to like be knowledgeable you know like they just kind of have to well now they have to you know deal with their romance problem and we'll read all about that but you know it's not like you know, in this in the course of this play, like I have no idea what <laughs> either of these people do yeah, for a living. Really they have like a job. Smoking you know what I mean? That's, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and going from the city to the countryside. Yeah. I get the moral of the play is to drop out of school and yeah, start true. smoking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what Oscar Wilde was really job. meant with this uh, this play. <laughs> it's pro smoking. Maybe he play. was a writer, but that's. Classic, that was, a classic moral sorry, for all. I probably shouldn't make this joke. Uh, besides the writing. I was, writing. Talk, yeah. <laughs> was going to say, is that really a job? But I'm the <laughs> one to talk. I'm a classic major. So, like, I really can't. <laughs> sorry to all y'all writers out there. <laughs> I mean, there is there is a writer in the book, which mm-hmm. is Cecily, which is I, also classic moment when Gwendolyn pulls out her own diary and compares <laughs> yeah. with Cecily. That was great. When, when, also, Cecily said she said she wanted to publish her. She was like, you know, I'm writing all these observations mm-hmm. down as a young girl observing the world for private use, which obviously means it will be published later. I felt like honestly, sometimes reading this play is like, you know, you get Wilde's present presence so mm-hmm. so much and with such like flavor and intensity that it almost like you would almost like risk like washing out. I guess like the characters. But because the way that he is expressing himself is by like mm-hmm. magnifying all of these characteristics of all these characters, like he kind of has his cake and eats it too, of like having this really strong authorial funny tone while also like still having a cohesive mm. plot. Although there are some scenes where it's like hard to tell what's going on, like just the whole like muffin scene, uh-huh. like I was saying before, just felt like a tongue twister <laughs> of like a scene. It's just like, oh, well, I want two muffins. Well, give me one muffin. Oh, tea cake. Eat the tea cake. Oh, well, I don't like tea cakes. Well, you know how important muffins are to me. And it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I um. So I, I, I listened to the audiobook version of this, which was like done mm. like in a live theater. and They just recorded it. And in the like little, they did like a little preface, and they were like, you know, this play is really, yeah, was, you of can course, very influential on Monty Yeah, Python. I can see that. And I, I could sort of, I can see it. Just Oscar, oh, yeah. you know, just if you engage with like any British mm. media oh, yeah. that has comedy in it, like you're probably going to get like some, some wild in there, you know, it's just, it's interesting. It honestly kind of crazy how some, some authors can like change the course of like the entire social like the way that you do comedy in Britain, like it, it's funny that this play that's all about <clears throat> how how dumb rules yeah. are, like yeah, sort of. I mean, there are so yeah, few funny people like a kind in of, Britain like, already, yeah. so they really got to take their pointers from how, like... the oldies. Anyway, sorry, what were you saying, Connor? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny because I think Oscar <laughs> Wilde was like one of the first really big mm-hmm. like author celebrities at the time he almost kind of like invented the whole mm-hmm. auteur stuff or it's just like he he wasn't just the author you, you weren't just like reading this thing you were reading oscar wilde and stuff and it's like you can't just be like a fan right. of his yeah, writing exactly. without being he a definitely fan has a person. a persona that is very prominent 
like outside of his work, like not just in his work, but outside of his work as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Cult yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, bring it back a little. Bit. This is kind of we we like passed this point a while ago, but I know uh, Jeanette, you mentioned sure. like the servants. <laughs> Even though the servants are so rarely within this, I love them. I listened to the audiobook as well, and hearing the audio of the servants, <laughs> like the yes, master, was <laughs> like so good. And like I love Algernon's interactions with his own servant, and how it's interesting how like Algernon realizes the rules of the servant himself he's like oh you're such a i really i enjoyed lane's character as little as it showed up because it really (laughs) reminded me of actually like ancient comedy because in like roman comedy and like plautus um or even like in Mm. greek comedy like aristophanes you always have a knowing servant or like a knowing slave it's called the uh, what is it? It's like the Servus um, Caritas or something. I forget exactly. But you always have like the clever slave and the bumbling master and the slave always knows so much more what's going on than the the guy that he's under, I guess. And I really enjoyed how Lane like played into that trope, especially that part where it's like it, literally the first two lines when Algernon's like, did you hear what I was playing? And he's like, I didn't. It's polite to listen, sir. It's just, oh, it's wonderful. Even though it's like a two-bit part, <laughs> the servants definitely have characters of their own, which is very nice. Yeah, that's interesting, the classical connection. And I think it's almost kind of like the servant almost in some mm-hmm. ways like plays the role of the bard a little bit. I don't know if I'm if that's accurate or not, but it's like the, the bard is the one who like evokes the emotions, mm-hmm. says what's really mm-hmm. going on in the moment or, or whatever and like it exposes everything the servants kind of do the same sort of thing in this play they do make the rules very present no matter how much mm-hmm. the other characters downplay them definitely even even in the in the later parts where there's that other servant that interrupts uh Cecily and Gwendolyn like you know it's totally it's a classic straight man play, but it's also just, you know, it is that knowing element that is that sort of gives that, you know, the the servants that kind of like cardboard, you know, everyone else is absurd, but we're just going to like sort of do our mm. job kind of <laughs> vibe, which works really well in this play because every main character well, yeah, cause is crazy. The servants don't even have the choice to be absurd. They just have to follow the rule. Like, they're aware <laughs> of the rules, but they don't even wow. have the privilege to, like, contradict right, them in exactly. the same way that like, someone like Algernon would. I, and that's a commentary in and of itself, right? About how that's very the, true. the high society, you know, fops and dandies mm. and, and ladies, they're all, you know, very concerned about the social constructs that, like, make up how their world you know spins or whatever but the servants can't even afford to deviate from that because they're just stuck you know doing their little thing so Mm -hmm. i don't know Mm -hmm. yes exactly exactly and then cover for their stupid masters when they eat all the cucumber sandwiches (laughs) and they have to be like oh there wasn't even any for ready money (laughs) whatever Mm. that means it's almost <laughs> like it's like within the rules that you're meant to contradict the rules, but only if you 
play by them in mm -hmm. the first place, which is interesting. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it, only if you have the privilege to not. Yeah, be yeah. Reprimanded. Just like today. <laughs> wow. Just like today. We live in a society. Just like today. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It's true. That's we could definitely say that no matter how much nonsense this play is, we can at least say it is it is about society. <laughs> so true. It's true. I don't think Oscar Wilde would disagree. If you asked him if we lived in a society, he would probably say yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How is that a British accent? <laughs> well, yes. it's British <laughs> it's because kind of I like, know it's British. You said it quieter. <laughs> All right, yeah. This is me. Get, do, a, do a real British yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Americans <laughs> are loud. British are quiet, you know. That'll do. All right. Well, I'm really excited to finish this play. Do you guys have any overall, I guess, concluding thoughts you know what? about Acts 1 and 2? I don't think this is going to happen, but... I think Gwendolyn and Cecily de deserve each other in the end. I think they should go off and, and be whatever. That, that's definitely not going to happen, but girl power. That's true. Honestly, that's true. I, that would fit, though. I, I mean, think that would all? fit. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's true. That's true. How could I? How could I? Forget? Right. Yeah, true. Me? How could Unless I forget? forget? It's true. Um... <laughs> right. <laughs> how could you forget? Mm -hmm. I'm like I'm very I'm enjoying this a lot so far. Very excited to see where it goes, and I'm just really impressed with like the because the construction of this play. You know, it's especially coming after Emma, which I feel like is like you really have mm -hmm. to like dig deep to like get to the content mm -hmm. through the language. You know, this is just like it's so you know even <laughs> because it's just focusing on like dopamine essentially just like jokes 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 yeah. you know the enjoyment the message is conveyed through it you know it's timeless it's great so i I'm yeah very honestly this kind it. of moves mm -hmm. emma down a couple pegs after reading this <laughs> I, I feel like this does what emma was trying to do but more effectively i i kind of like the format of this better than emma and, and i think that's why in some ways, at least like when we talk with Todd, I kind of understand why Todd thought right, that Emma yeah. worked better as, as a movie than as a book, which is mm -hmm. interesting because, you know, this, this is a play, which is right, kind of like the yeah. in-between of movie and book. Yeah. And it really has the runtime of like a 90-minute of a mm -hmm. movie, really. If you yeah, I know it. that there are so. some film adaptations that... I know. I, I almost want to put on out the importance this. of being earnest. I just recently, mm, you players too. did Arsenic and Old Lace, and this has a very similar, <laughs> like, not black comedy, because Arsenic and Old Lace is black comedy, but this definitely has that kind of absurdist vibe that I would love to be, like, just imagine that muffin scene. I would love that. I would love that. Definitely excited to see where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I have really no clue where it's gonna go, but I'm I'm still looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs>